Hey, so if you're a guest worshiping with us uh, for the first time or for the first time in a while, we're in a series called Sunday School Revisited, a fun series that we get to do uh, that takes a look back at these uh, Sunday school stories that maybe you learned in Sunday school growing up, or maybe that wasn't in your background, maybe that you didn't, but your kids are now learning these stories growing up, which is terrific. Um, You can see we've got a couple of the the VeggieTales characters out. A lot of these stories, maybe you've seen... uh, with your kids, watching them play out on VeggieTales. Uh, the premise of this series, just by way of reminder, is to say, when we look at these stories as kids, we can sort of view them through a certain light. When we look at them then as adults, the same message is there, only, only it's somehow deeper. Only somehow our life experience sheds not different light on it, but maybe brighter light on what's always been there the entire time. Uh, for example, last year we heard a story, and it's just a lot of these stories, ridiculous, to be completely honest with you. They're just bizarre stories that you, you, you like, can't make this stuff up. Uh, last year we heard this story of when God comes to uh, one of his prophets and says, I want you to go to this city way, way outside of, of your own country's borders. And go, I want you to bring this message of of grace to them. I want you to bring this message of of turning from whatever it is they're into and turning towards me, the loving God. And the prophet says, you know what? I have followed you everywhere, only I am not going there. And so he punches a one-way ticket, like the exact opposite direction. And a storm comes, and the waves are beating against the hull of this ship. And the sailors are throwing everything they have overboard and saying, like, hopefully this is enough because someone is angry at us, and hopefully this is going to be enough to make the sea calm down. And Jonah says, it's not the sea who's mad. Throw me overboard. God wants me. And like I said, it's bizarre. It's almost ridiculous. You can't make this stuff up. A fish comes, swallows him whole. Fish, whale, whatever it is, he lives in there for three days. Like having this come to Jesus kind of moment in a very real kind of way. Um, The fish, eventually he figures it out, spits him up on the shore. Side note, two ways to exit a fish. Spitting is the preferred methodology. He he goes... (laughs) He goes to Nineveh, brings that word there. And the city repents. They turn around. They honor God. These stories, friends, are just, we have to acknowledge how bizarre, how almost ridiculous they are, how you just couldn't make it up if you tried. This story, again, this, this morning we have another story exactly in that light. A ridiculous, a bizarre story. One I don't think you could make up. Before we get into the story, before we read it, I want to just remind all of us that we're in a place right now in the biblical story, in the Sunday school story, when the people, the Israelites, God's people, are exiting the Egypt, the land of slavery, Exodus, exit, right? We've been in that book for a little while. Coming out, and the sea parts in half. The Red Sea, they walk through on dry enough ground. They walk through the desert. They don't have anything to eat, anything to drink. God provides not what they hoped for, but what they needed. After God provides that and continues to do, say they come to the mountain where God gives them these loving instructions, just like a good parent would. And says, this is how to live well. This is how to live as my people. Years, years, years after that, they, they can finally, they're on the cusp of like realizing the promise. 
They're on the cusp of, of finally getting to experience what it was that got them out of Egypt in the first place. This promised land. And I want us to acknowledge something together. The promised land is a place where they can plow their own farms, where they can plant their own vineyards, where they can build their own homes. They can live as a free people. They can be God's people. Only what we have to acknowledge together is that it's a difficult story because people have already plowed those farms, have already planted those vineyards, have already built those houses. Is that this isn't a story where people just move into these empty places. It's a story where there's people already living there. It's a story where those people are removed. And as we're going to see, I don't think I have a great answer. I might not even have a good enough answer for what goes into that removal process. I just want to acknowledge the difficulty of everything in the Bible. I think this is one of the hardest things to wrap our minds around. In the meantime, though, the story, they come up before uh, Jericho and these walls, the thick walls, high walls. Uh, Two ways to lay siege to a city. Two ways in that time of entering a city that does not belong to you. Entering a city with thick walls, with high walls. There's the slow way, and there's the fast way. Uh, Slow way involves surrounding the city. Uh, Slow way involves uh, cutting off uh, rivers, creeks, uh, water sources. Uh, Slow way involves uh, making these people so thirsty for water that eventually they just give up and hand over their city. Slow way involves going to every tree, fruit tree around the city, every orchard, every vineyard, and cutting it all down, making the people so hungry that they just hand over their city, that they just give it to you. A slow way of taking over a city involves surrounding the city, taking the rocks that over um, hundreds of years were taken out of the the farmland and, and using your army to put them back in so that you can't plow straight lines, so that you can't get enough food for everybody around. A slow way involves just destroying all the food sources, all the water sources around a city, and eventually the people get so tired, get so hungry, get so thirsty that they just give you the city. There's evidence both in the Bible and out that says this one time, uh, Tyre, the city of Tyre, was laid siege upon. Thirteen years later, people handed over their, the keys to their city. Thirteen years later, the siege worked. That's a slow way. As clever as the attackers are on that, with chopping down fruit trees, with blocking creeks, blocking rivers, the defenders are just as tricky. The city Jerusalem, it's a, it's a big one. It's a capital city. Um, it's where the king lives. If you were to take over Jerusalem, it would not be hard to take over every other city after the big one falls. It's a important, it's a strategic location lay siege to the city. They knew it's coming. And so there's this, this system of underground aqueducts, like tunnels where water could come into the city and the attackers would know nothing about it. And so they have to have a source of fresh water, even though there might be an army surrounding the city. 
Not only that, there's an underground system of tunnels in which people could go through to get out of the city, underneath the army, way out there, grab uh, food supplies, grab uh, everything that they need from uh, partner cities outside in their network, and, and bring it back into the city. You see, this last, this could last 13 long years. There's a slow way. And there's the fast way. The fast way involves something remarkably similar to maybe what you've seen on Lord of the Rings. Or on any other, like, castle, storm the castle kind of movie. Uh, The fast way involves a very large army, very large battering rams with chains, and just smashing up against the gates, the weakest point, until they're through, and just pouring in. The fast way of the city involves scaling ladders up against the walls and just climbing up and keep climbing up until you have enough people on top of the wall to open up the gates from the inside. As clever as the attackers are, the defenders are just as tacker, uh, clever in the fast way because these people are pouring uh, um, hot burning oil like used in lamps on top of the battering rams and the people down below to prevent them. A biblical source in the Old Testament, Abimelech was climbing one of these scaling ladders and a woman, these people are throwing everything they possibly can over the wall in hopes of defending themselves. There's like this millstone, uh, it's you'd like grind grain with it. It's like the ancient equivalent of a food processor. You can just imagine this woman going into her kitchen. There's someone climbing up the ladder and she just hucks it down and she happens to hit the king. Like, what luck? There's a slow way of of taking a city and there's a fast way. I want to present to you a way that nobody else ever took. This is uh, the book of Joshua, uh, chapter 6. They're laying uh, siege to the city of Jericho. It's thick walls. It's high walls. It isn't the slow way. It isn't the fast way. Um, select verses are on the, uh, the flow sheet. Also, on uh, the words behind me, Joshua 6. Now, the gates of Jericho were securely bared because of the Israelites. No one went out. No one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of rams, horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout, Then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up, everyone straight in. So Joshua, son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the ark of the covenant of the Lord and have seven priests carry trumpets in front of it. He ordered the army, Advance, march around the city with an armed guard going ahead of the ark of the Lord. When Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets before the Lord went forward blowing their trumpets, and the ark of the Lord's covenant followed them. The armed guard marched ahead of the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard followed the ark. All this time the trumpets were sounding, but Joshua had commanded the army, do not give a war cry, do not raise your voices, do not say a word until the day I tell you to shout. Then shout. So he had the ark of the Lord carried around the city, circling it once. And the army returned to camp, spent the night there. 
Joshua got up early the next morning and the priest took up the ark of the Lord. Seven priests carrying the seven trumpets went forward, marching before the ark of the Lord, blowing their trumpets. The armed men went ahead of them and the rear guard followed the ark of the Lord while the trumpets kept sounding. So on the second day, they marched around the city once and returned to camp. They did this for six days. On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak, marched around the city seven times in the same manner. Except on that day, they circled the city seven times. The seventh time around, when the priests sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the army, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and the city and all that are in it are to be devoted toward the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all those who are with her in her house shall be spared. Another story altogether. Because she, another time, because she hid the spies we sent. Keep away from the devoted things so that you'll not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you'll make the camp of, the Israelite, of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver, all the gold, the artifacts of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. When the trumpets sounded, the army shouted, and the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So everyone charged straight in. They took the city. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with a sword every little living thing in it. Men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. It's a bizarre story, right? I mean, um, like, people have been looking at this story for a long, long time. And by the way, you can, like, go to the place of Jericho today. Um, it's a big mound. And there's layers and layers and layers and layers of when the city was rebuilt and destroyed, rebuilt and destroyed. And people have looked at this ridiculous story and said, like, how is it that, that trumpets could, could somehow, like, combine with people shouting and bring these walls down. And they're speculating maybe it's uh, the, the frequency of the trumpets and shout together. And, you know, I don't know. Frankly, I think that we should just embrace the ri- ridiculousness of the story. I think we just need to re- embrace the story and say, how bizarre is that? I mean, just imagine for a moment these guys circling around the city. And they've got a small guard in front. They've got a, a small guard in back. And then... Yeah, p- preachers, right? Like, not the guys you want in your army. <laughs> Self-included, that's okay. Um, marching with the ark and saying, like, here we go. And we've got our trumpets. We don't have arrows. We don't have spears. And just marching around. Normally, you would think, okay, the people on top of the walls, I mean, this is the time when they get their food processors and start hawking it down. Only they don't. These people are not a threat. Because this is not an army marching around our city. This is a marching band. And we don't care. Let them go. I mean, what, possibly the worst thing that could possibly happen. At worst, it's annoying. At best, they'll tire themselves out and they'll go home. Let it play out. And so they, they circle the city every day. And then on the seventh, seven times. 
And they're shouting these trumpets, or they're blasting these trumpets all the while. And on the seventh day, on the seventh time, they accompany the trumpets with shouting. And for some reason, the sound of their own voice along with the trumpets is enough to make the walls shake. And the picture you get is like they turn into sand and they just kind of fall, right? And not just one crack in the wall here and there, but everything. It says that they, they all charged straight in. And I just think, why? Why would, this, why would this be the way that the people get to charge into the city? Like, why trumpets? Why the marching band? Why a small guard in front, a small guard behind? Why, why bring the Ark of the Covenant, which was like the, the image, the, 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 the presence, the physical presence of uh, reminding them of God's presence? Why would they do it this way? I just imagine years later, not like three years later, but I'm talking 10, 50, 100 years later, uh, walking by this place. And it's a mound. And somebody's stopping over and said, Son, ever, ever told you this one? Yeah, I've heard it before. Now, I just, I want you to hear it one more time. It was trumpets, son. We got our trumpets out, and I was in the marching band, or your uncle was in the band. And we just marched around this city, and at once, and then again the next day, and again the next day, and the seventh day, seventh time, son, the walls turned into sand, and it just collapsed, and it was ours for the taking. I just want you to hear it one more time. We'll be telling this story to our kids, to our grandkids, to our great-grandkids here today, still telling this story. Why trumpets? Why the marching band? Precisely because it's just so ludicrous. It's so ridiculous that nobody would ever make this stuff up. It's almost as if God's saying, you know, I'm going to give you this city don't worry about that. But, but what I have to communicate to you, what I have to make known to you, is that this is not up to you. I don't want you to ever tempt yourself into thinking that somehow you did this on your own because you're bigger, because you're stronger, because you're uh, more clever. You aren't. <laughs> I'm giving you this city simply because you're mine. There's a story in um, New York. It's a Russian immigrant. Uh, name was uh, John Roebling. He was looking at the New York landscape, and he, was, he saw a place for a bridge when everybody else said, well, it was ridiculous. And he said, no, no, no. Um, this is uh, mid-1800s. And he was going, there should be a bridge here. It would make sense. Problem is, it's impossible to build. Everybody knew that it was impossible to build. Otherwise, they would have done it. He's an engineer. He sits out and he goes, you know, I'm going to build the impossible bridge. And my son, who's in uh, late 20s, early 30s, is going to help me. And so he gets a funding together. <laughs> and even, a, even amidst wild criticism about starting on this bridge, he sets out. He starts to build. 
And while he's laying the foundation, he's not even very far into the project, uh, an accident happens. Uh, something loses its, uh, its footing. Um, John loses his life almost instantly. His son, Washington, was, uh, was suffering a decompression illness. And as it turns out, he was paralyzed almost completely. The only thing he could do was move one of his fingers. And now this is when the, the critics start to get louder, right? Saying, we told you. We told you that this was impossible, that the, the bridge could not be built. It's obviously the case now. You've got no head engineer. You've got no junior engineer. It can't be done. Washington, young guy in his 30s, way younger than any other uh, chief engineer on a project this big, but he, he, he sets out with his wife, Emily, to create a system of communication uh, between him and her. He can't talk, but he can move his finger. And so he sets up this communication where he can, he can tap his instructions to her, and she can be the one to carry it to the other people who carry it to more people who implement it. You hear this story, and it's ridiculous, isn't it? You can look it up on Wikipedia later. True story. He gets the language down. She has to do a, quite a bit of remedial work in, uh, in engineering and mathematics, uh, learns some of this stuff, kind of plugs in the gaps that he couldn't tap out. And eventually, through her instructions from him, uh, 18, uh, let's see, 18, 1883, when the bridge started in 1870, 1883, the Brooklyn Bridge went up. Originally, it's for um, like horse-drawn wagons. No cars around, right? Uh, as of, uh, I think it was a year ago, two years ago, 100,000 cars pass through every day. It's the story of the Brooklyn Bridge. It's a ridiculous story of the Brooklyn Bridge that keeps getting told. And if you're looking back to, to John Roebling's initial vision and saying, I think there should be a bridge here. It'd be good for our city. And it's almost as if to say, lest you ever think that you have done this on your own, you aren't. It's not on your own. It's not by your power. It's not up to you, Washington. It's not up to you, Emily. I just think about this story and circling around these thick walls, these high walls. I, I almost just can't help to apply that, right? And say, what if there's something that we're endeavoring to, to take? What if there's a project we're taking on? What if it's some kind of a relationship work that needs to happen? Just the, the tough stuff of apologizing, of asking forgiveness, of offering forgiveness? What if there's these, these thick walls and these high walls? And couldn't we imagine on the far side of it that God is just going to do something incredible? Go before us and say, you know what? Forgiving sounds ridiculous. It really does. It doesn't work out on paper. It doesn't seem like a good idea to most people. but just be obedient. And the walls like sand.
It's not up to you, it's up to me, says God. There's another element of this story, though, that's beyond just the the mere fact that, that God uses this bizarre way to capture the city. There's also the way, the specific way that he does it. I'm going to give, uh, going to give God some credit here and to say, I'm guessing that it was uh, somewhat intentional that he chooses uh, every day, once, twice, six times in a row, seventh day, seven times with the order, hush, hush, don't say anything, just blow the horns. And on the seventh day, seventh time, blow the horns and shout. Uh, Now I've I led you to believe something that isn't uh, totally right here. I, I sort of like jokingly called it a marching band going around the city. I mean, you get a picture of trumpets. I'm thinking New Orleans, jazz music, parade through the streets. Not like that at all. Um, you see, trumpets were, were more like uh, the word that's used here. Uh, it calls to mind a ram's horn. Um, Myers was out, so no ram's horn. But you get like, you blow in it and it kind of like spirals through and then comes out here. And you get one loud blast. You, you don't get different notes. It's not an inch, a musical instrument at all. In fact, it's used in two purposes. One is in fighting in the military. Uh, Brian's going to share this one on a story uh, later on in the series. Gideon, and, and I hope I'm not giving it away here, but people are circling around the, the, the camp and they all blow their ram's horns. And the idea is that it's so loud, it's so, it's beyond annoying, and it's into the area of confusing. And people, like, don't know where the sound is coming from, because it's coming from everywhere. And you can't, like, bark orders to anybody else to get mobilized, to go here, to go there. And so it's, it's used almost as a weapon to confuse everybody. Only this time, you can see, it, it doesn't really do a whole lot in the way of confusing everybody so that people can storm in. I, for some reason, the, the horn has been blasting the entire time and nothing happens, six days straight, and then six times. And it's accompanied by the voices shouting, too, that the walls turn into sand and the people presumably stop shouting or stop blowing the horns and they just head right in. The other use for a ram's horn... is to acknowledge the presence of God in a worship ceremony. We should picture something, uh, people gathering together to worship in ancient Israel. And they would bring out the ark, the priesthood on either side. And at the culmination of their, of their worship service, they would acknowledge that God himself is dwelling in this place. And so they'd take their ram's horn, which was like the equivalent of, uh, of an air horn, and they would shout it. Right? Except for much, much, much longer. As long as their their vocal cords would hold up. I will spare you from that. They'll blast the horn and they just everything would quiet down, and the only thing you would hear is this, this massive horn acknowledging God's presence. I would argue when the people bring these horns and they're blasting them around the city, this isn't meant as a way to confuse so that the people can somehow uh, outsmart or or trick the people into thinking that there's more of them than there really are. That was obvious. They're below the wall. The defenders are on top of the wall. You can see they don't amount to much. I would argue that the use of the horn in this instance is not military. It's religious. 
The people are acknowledging the presence of the Lord. And the walls melt. What would it be like this week? What would it be like if you're coming into a conversation and, you know, maybe, maybe you have the difficult work of calling somebody out and just saying, I want you to know that the track you're on is destructive not only to you but the people around you. And so you're challenging this person and, and you know it's not going to be well-received. You know him or her at least that much. Except that you don't go in you don't go in with, with emails loaded, with, with arguments set up, with, with mental quotes of what they said earlier, just ready to, to like spit out at them, almost like the arrows or battering rams. This isn't, uh, this isn't a forceful way to lay siege on another person. What if you go in acknowledging the presence and just saying, I have to ask for forgiveness from you just as much as you have to ask it from me, maybe more. I need grace at least as much as everybody else. And so I just want to acknowledge God's presence in this conversation. And I want everything that we do to honor him and to acknowledge that presence. And the defenses, the walls, melt. Not just in one place, here or there, so you can kind of get your way or, or like get a foot in the door and kind of wedge it open, but no, no, no. All the defenses, everything just done. It's a ridiculous story. I think that's intentional. I think God wants us to know it's not on our own power. It's not military. It's not coming into the situation. Uh, Guns loaded. uh, Verbal assault ready. We acknowledge the presence. There's still this difficult task of of really coming to terms with with what the people are asked here, right? I mean, they're asked to, to charge in to, uh, and take over uh, farms that are already plowed, vineyards that are already planted, and homes, homes that somebody already calls home. And so of everything in the Bible, you know, all the outlandish claims on our lives, on our time, on our talents, on our treasure, of everything that God asks, I think this honestly is one of, if not the most difficult parts. So what do we make of it? Like I said, I don't think that it's a good enough answer. I'm not even sure if it's a good answer. But I want to offer this. Genesis uh, chapter 16, or chapter 6. It's, an, it's another time when, when God looks down at the world and he says something, something has to change. It can't go on like this. I, I love it too much to go on this way. Genesis 6, chapter 11 now the whole earth was corrupt in God's sight. It, uh, the earth, 
was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I don't think it's a good answer. I don't think it's even good enough of an answer, but at the very least, what we can see is is that the people were not part of the solution, but part of the problem. I think God is looking down on the earth and saying, listen, if left if left untreated, if left undealt with, this infection is going to spread and spread. And eventually there's not going to be a place left on this good earth that's not going to be infected. Something must be done. The, the, the violence, the corruption must end. And so he says, everything is going to be devoted toward the Lord. Don't mistake what that means. That means if it doesn't honor God, it's part of the infection. If it's not good, it must be destroyed. One more time, I'm not even sure if that's a good enough answer. But I will offer this. I think it breaks God's heart at least as much as it does mine. Because he would eventually give his own son so that they don't have to be wiped out again. And so we have this challenge in front of us to say, are your hearts totally devoted towards the Lord? If it doesn't honor him, couldn't it be that there's some parts of our heart that just simply must be removed? Nailed to the cross, in fact. And forgiven. But you just stand up. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, our Lord, we invite you into our weeks. God, we have difficult conversations ahead. We have difficult tasks. We ask our holy God that, that you make your work through us ridiculously obvious. So we know it's not on our own power, but it's all you. Lord, as we acknowledge your presence, melt the walls, the barriers towards your love, towards your grace. In your name we pray. Amen.